This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Dear Father, we did have a great meal. It's fun to sit at a table with new people and get acquainted. And here we are, right after dinner. And you know, you know our physiology. You know how it works. All the blood rushes down to that great meal to begin the digestive process. But in the process, it vacates our brains and we get, we get a bit drowsy. So Father, we're moving into, we're moving into a vital theme. It doesn't matter what time of day it is. This theme is vital for us. And so I humbly pray, and we all join together in this prayer, that you will open our minds that the gift of the Holy Spirit, who keeps giving Himself again and again, that the, that the giver, the Holy Spirit Himself, will be present. We don't go into this with a cavalier spirit. We, we, we earnestly are looking to know the truth, that the truth might set us free. So, let this module now be optimized within us through the power of the Spirit hovering over us. For the glory and honor of Jesus, we pray in His name. Amen. Before we plunge into the teaching, good to have all of you and you're coming in from the back. Glad you're here. We want to put a study guide in your hands. There are two study guides today. One will take, you up to the, take us up to the break and then the second one. You want both study guides, but we're not going to give both of them to you now. We're going to put one in your hand at a time, and uh, we've got somebody up there at the door, I think, do we, that is going to be handing these out to uh, latecomers as they arrive. I want you to get the study guide. So before we do anything else, just make sure you get the study guide. There will be a part where you and I will start filling it in in just a moment. But this subject, the subject of Ellen White, which was assigned to me, they said, Dwight, if you're coming down here, would you please do this? And I, I did a teaching series of about 11 parts entitled The Gift at the Pioneer Memorial Church on the campus of Andrews University because I'm, the, the reality is we have a generation now that's grown up in the church that really doesn't know diddly squat about this gift. We have cyberspace now that is filled with voices pro and con regarding Ellen White. You can go anywhere you want in cyberspace and you get whatever you're looking for. So, in a world like this where you've not really been that exposed to the story behind the gift, I want to take just a few moments with you this afternoon, and I hope you can join us tomorrow morning. It's the last module tomorrow morning. Two more handouts for you. Share with you tomorrow morning, by the way, fascinating empirical research that they have done. A team of scholars has studied the effect. What happens to a human being who is exposed to this gift? and takes it seriously. They have been able to measure what goes on in terms of spirituality and this gift. You don't want to miss tomorrow. I'm going to give you the actual findings on the chart that the findings were published with. So that's tomorrow. But I want to plunge into this subject because you're going to be, you're going to be brought up short one day by somebody who's going to say, Hey, yo, tell me about this gift that you talk about. We understand about your church. Now, you're the church that believes in Joseph Smith, right? No, actually, you got us mixed up with somebody else. Oh, you're the church that has Mary Baker Eddy in it. No, that's really not our church. Are you the ones that don't uh, do blood transfusions? No, that's another group. 
Uh, well, who are you? Oh, white, 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 white. This Ellen White lady. Is that in your church? Yep, you got it. She liked Joseph Smith and Mary Baker, Eddie? Well, and now you're into it. I mean, it can go just like that. So I want, I want to give you enough material to where you feel comfortable under the inspiration of the Spirit to be able one day to intelligently carry on a conversation with somebody who asks you. Now, I'm, does that mean I'm some sort of authority in the area of Ellen White and her writings? Hardly. I'm just a practitioner. I've been reading here for a bunch of years. And it comes out of that experience that I want to share with you. Done some study. I'm indebted to some great scholars who have done their homework as well. Uh, you got Judd Lake down at Southern. Any of you go to Southern? And uh, you've heard, yep, some of you are there now. Uh, Judd Lake, a scholar there, has done uh, some excellent work. He's written a book called Ellen White Under Fire. And probably one of the best books I've read on the subject. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just pull from these scholars, put something together that I hope will be useful to you. This is part two because part one was this morning, the second coming of the Holy Spirit. And we tie, we're tying that in because the Holy Spirit is the great gift. And all this gift is about is the gift of the Holy Spirit working in, uh, our, contemporary, in our contemporary world. So, does everybody have a study guide? You got it? All right, good. Sir? Uh, Judd Lake. And you'll see him in the, in the study guide you get tomorrow. The book will be listed. His name will be there. But I'm just giving him uh, kudos right here at the beginning. Just to assure you that uh, I'm standing on some, some tall shoulders. Anybody not get a study guide? Good. Everybody's got it? Gentlemen, thank you for, for uh, you who are handing them out. Folks are still coming in. But Nestor, Nestor is my friend. Nestor was our undergraduate uh, spiritual life leader on the campus of Andrews University. He's a pastor, a young pastor now in, in Wisconsin. And he's kind of my keep Dwight straight person assigned by GYC, and I'm just really grateful for him. So, Nestor, are you going to stay up there so people coming in will get those study guides? Okay, good. Because they're, they're walking right by you now. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's go. We've had our prayer. I want to begin with, with the Sermon on the Mount. Before we go to our PowerPoint, everything's on PowerPoint today. It's just boom, 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 boom. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount would be Matthew chapter 7. Open your Bible with me, please, to Matthew chapter 7. Let's get into it together. If you had a red-letter Bible, mine's not a red-letter Bible, but if you had a red-letter, these words would be bright red. I personally am biased to red-letter Bibles. I love them. They're very easy for me to quickly spot the words of Jesus on a page. Matthew chapter 7, Sermon on the Mount. Let's pick it up in verse 15. I want you to reflect on this. We're going to come back to this again and again, and I'll be flipping it on the screen. But this first time, I want you to see it in your own Bible. Matthew chapter 7. Let's pick it up in verse 15. Jesus speaking, Beware of false prophets. Whoa! Be careful, He says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Look out, guys. Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. Do men and women gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Do you go to a thistle plant to get figs? Nope, rhetorical question. You gather grapes from thorn bushes, but of course not. Verse 17, even so, Jesus says, every good tree bears good fruit, 
But a bad tree bears what? Bad fruit. A good tree, verse 18, cannot bear... This is a key line here. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. I want you to lock in on that. That's huge. As you'll see in just a moment. That's huge. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, here's Jesus' great line, therefore, by their fruits, you shall, you're going to know them. By their fruits, you shall know them. November 26, 1827, in a little rural village outside Portland, Maine. Frigid. Cold New England earth, the last few autumn leaves, windblown and strewn across that brown and barren land, in the home of Robert and Eunice Harmon. A home, by the way, already bulging with two sons and four daughters. Overnight, literally, the home is expanded by two instantly. Twins. They named the oldest, first one out, Elizabeth. Called her Lizzie. Second one, Ellen. And this farmer turned in the winter hat maker to survive. Now has two more mouths to feed in that tiny little New England farmhouse. Truth is, Anybody coming into the world, the frigid, wintry world of New England in that year is facing a formidable challenge. Let me read these statistics to you of survival. Statistics in those years indicate that, listen to this, children under 10 often constituted close to 50% of deaths in a year, not counting stillborn. Children under 10, the death rate, 50% of the deaths, children under 10. Stated differently, and this is, uh, this would be accessing the city paper there in in Portland, Maine, the advertiser. Stated differently, the average, hold on, you see, the average age at death during 1840, when the twins were 13, all right, the average age at death was 22.6 years. If you can make it to 22.6 beyond, you're doing well. Leading the advertiser, the city paper, to claim that that demonstrated, quote, the superior degree of health enjoyed in Portland. Come to our town because the average age of death here is way up to 22.6. That tells you the world that these little twins were born into. Now listen, what's going on? Let me read uh, a chronicle of what's taking lives. Typhoid fever, you've heard of that. Typhus, cholera, measles, scarlet, consumption. That would be a tuberculosis. But as it turns out, what nearly killed one of the twins was not a disease, but anger. They're coming home, the twins. They're coming home with their older sister. After school. They got into some sort of altercation with another older girl in the classroom. 
And she's not, she's not, she's not taking no for an answer. Now, the, 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 the twins have been raised by their godly mother. A soft answer turns away wrath. So they're not responding to this girl who's just kind of egging them on, following them. Hey, come on, you girls. What's the problem with you? Why'd you do that? Whatever was going on, this person, the older student, is following the twins. As they cross the street, the twin named Ellen, wanting to gauge the distance that this protagonist is at, turns around at the split second that a stone hurled in anger by that older girl sails through the air and strikes this little nine-year-old twin named Ellen, smashing her face right here. She fell to the ground, unconscious. They pick her up and carry her to a general store. And the people gather around her. Oh, girl, oh, girl, you have been hurt. Listen, you, we'll, we'll, we'll get a buggy and we'll give you a ride home. No, 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 no. She said, she, she came to, she said, I can make it. And that little nine-year-old with her twin limps home. When she comes home, she collapses, not realizing how devastated, how deep the wound had been. Years later, I'm going to put this on the screen now, Ellen, that twin, recalls this incident. She's looking back now. And we'll take a look. I was stunned. So she's writing now some years later. I was stunned by the blow and fell senseless to the ground. When consciousness returned, I found myself in a merchant store. A kind stranger offered to take me home in his carriage, but I, not realizing my weakness, told him that I preferred to walk. Those present were not aware that my injury was so serious and allowed me to go, but after walking only a few rods, I grew faint and dizzy. My twin sister and my schoolmate carried me home. I have no recollection of anything further for some time after the accident. My mother said that I noticed nothing but lay in a stupor Almost, kind of semi-comatose, for three weeks. No one but herself, Mama, thought it possible for me to recover. But for some reason, she felt that I would live. I was reduced almost to a skeleton. She's obviously not eating at all, is she? I was reduced almost to a skeleton. Now, she's, she's slowly coming out of this misty fog. Three weeks Brain concussion, obviously. Today we would call it TBI. What's TBI stand for? Traumatic brain injury. I have a son-in-law who came back from Iraq. He was a medic with the U.S. Army Rangers. Suffered 17 documented concussions while in Iraq. Survived. Had to be out there where the IEDs were going off. Came back. Everybody thought, man, this is great. You, you made it. Months later, he began to develop traumatic brain injury. Splitting headaches, sleep apnea, inner ear issues, the whole nine yards. Back then, nobody knew anything, and so she's been stricken in the face with this rock. She's coming out of her unconsciousness, reduced almost to a skeleton. One day, a neighbor lady drops by the house. Hey, listen, how's your little girl doing? How's little Ellen doing? And Ellen overheard after the labor lady stuck her head into the room where Ellen was lying, she overhears this lady say to, to Ellen's mother, What a pity! I should not know her. I wouldn't have even recognized her, is what she's saying. Ellen hears that. 
And so she immediately asks for a mirror. Alright? Here's the reaction. She looks into this mirror and what's staring back at her, every feature of my face seemed changed. The sight was more than I could bear. I did not wish to live, but I dared not die, for I was not prepared. Now listen, guys. This is 2011. That was back, uh, that was back before 1840. Even then, the extreme consciousness of physical appearance... Let me ask you, is this generation hyper-conscious of physical appearance? Of any generation on earth, could we identify most with this little nine-year-old who gets a glass? They bring the mirror in and she sees she can't recognize a single feature on her face. I mean, what would you be thinking? You're a little girl, you're a little boy. What would you be thinking? This is my life now. We're not talking plastic surgery and we'll put a face transplant on. This is my life. I mean, of any generation that could understand just a heart-sick drop when I realize what's happened to me. Whoa. But the pain that cut her most deeply to the quick was when her beloved daddy, who had been away in Georgia when the accident took place on some business, when he returned home, watch this, when he returned, he spoke to my brothers and sisters and inquired for me, Hey, where's Ellen? Anybody seen Alan around? It was hard. So he steps into the room. Alan. It was hard to make him believe that I was his Alan. That's, that's how much the physical visage has been changed. This cut me to the heart, yet I tried to put on an appearance of cheerfulness when my heart ached. Guys, Nine years old. You're starting out life and your own daddy can't even recognize you. How do you think you're going to feel? How are you going to handle life now with this face forever? Some years later, Ellen White went back to that very place in the road. Get this, guys. She goes back to the very place where that accident took place. She stands there, contemplates her life, and then writes these words. I visited the spot where I met with the accident that has made me a lifelong invalid. She never pulled out of it. She was weak. She was sickly her whole life. Now get this, I'm standing where the accident happened to turn me into this. This misfortune, which for a time seemed so bitter and was so hard to bear, has proved to be a blessing in disguise. Can you believe it? She's now saying it's a blessing. The cruel blow which blighted the joys of earth was the means of turning my eyes to heaven. I might never have known Jesus, had not the sorrow that clouded my early years led me to seek comfort in Him. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, that is quite a testimony. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, please. My life's been ruined, but I, I realize what a blessing it all has been. What is going on here? 
I might never have known Jesus had I not gone through this accident. Wow. How did Jesus put it? Read it out loud with me. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Now remember, if there's good fruit, if there's good fruit, the tree cannot be bad. Is that clear? If there's good fruit, the tree cannot be bad. And by the way, if there's bad fruit, the tree cannot be good. Isn't that right? Now, I know you just had dinner. Some of your eyes are already looking at half-mast. I'm keeping an eye on you, sir. I'm going to spend more of my time lecturing right here now because I got his attention now. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. If there's good fruit, it cannot come from a bad tree. All right, let's keep going. By the way, you have all this material in your study guide. But let's keep going. In 1840, an itinerant Baptist farmer turned preacher named William Miller came riding into town. Whoa! And he is talking about getting back into the prophecies. And based on the prophecies he's been studying in Daniel, he is actually, get this, he is predicting the end of the world and the return of Christ. And I'm telling you, like, a, like an apocalyptic wildfire, the fervor is spreading through Portland, Maine. And little 13-year-old Ellen, with rapt attention, is sitting on the front row of those public lectures. She is drinking it in. She's been impacted. Turns out she's been impacted for the rest of her life by the preaching of that farmer-turned-preacher, William Miller. She'd always had a heart for spiritual things, but as Herbert Douglas in his classic book, uh, The Messenger. If you ever get a book uh, uh, on, on the life of Ellen White, just her life and ministry, Herb Douglas is at the ABC, The Messenger. Douglas makes this point. Her primary motivation, however, the reason she's all caught up in this apocalyptic fervor, her primary motivation was fear. Fear of not being ready when Jesus would come. Fear of failure because of her limited schooling and weakened body. And fear that in some way God had afflicted her with her horrid physical burden. God has done this to me. Messed up face, sickly life. God has punished me. She's afraid of God. So she's really being drawn into this apocalyptic preaching, end of the world. But her motivation is, is, is tragically fear-based. And by the way, how many, even in our community of faith, are motivated by fear? How many people today are saying, you know what, I better go with Jesus because, man, he's going to be re- God is really going to be mad if I don't. And nothing about, well, I want, to, I, want to, I want to go deep with this friendship. Nothing about, this is the most glorious life to be called to. No. Man, I'll go to hell if I don't. That's what's been driving her. So mother wisely listens to little girl, 13 years old, she says, you know what? You need to go to talk to our pastor, Levi. Levi Stockman, a young pastor in town. So she makes an appointment for Ellen to sit down with, with Levi Stockman. He gently listens, describes for her after listening to that young teenager the character of God as, as it's reflected in the life and ministry of Jesus. And something like a switch, it just something goes on in Ellen's mind. And she later would write, 
Talking about that visit with Pastor Levi, faith now took possession of my heart. She saw the story of Jesus. She, she contemplated his ministry. Faith now took possession of my heart. I felt an inexpressible love for God and had the witness of a spirit that my sins were pardoned. Wow! My views of the Father were changed. He's no longer somebody to be afraid of. He's someone to be a friend of. That's the picture that Seventh-day Adventists need to be taken to the world, by the way. God is not somebody to be afraid of. He's somebody to be a friend of. My views of the Father were changed. I now looked upon Him as a kind and tender parent rather than a stern tyrant compelling men and women to blind obedience. My heart went out toward Him in a deep and fervent love. My heart was so filled with love to God and the peace that passes understanding that I loved to meditate and pray. Now, would you classify that as bad fruit or good fruit? That's a no-brainer, isn't it? I love, I'm just drawn to God. I, I now see Him as a tender, compassionate Father. And I love to meditate and pray. Soon, young Ellen and her family, by the way, joined tens of thousands of Americans who, with hopeful heart, following the Bible teachers of William Miller, are looking at the clock, counting down October 22, 1844, September can you imagine if you thought the world was ending in one month? If you thought the world was ending in one month, how would you be living right now? I mean, if, we, if there was a date in January that we had been given, that in, on that date, Jesus is coming back to this planet, how would we be living right now? I mean, you just try to get into the psyche, the mindset of that massive revival, the Millerite Movement revival. Jesus is coming. Jeez, I mean, the theologians have done the research. Everybody is sure the numbers are right. Jesus is coming. So you can understand that when October 22, 1844 comes, 16-year-old Alan is on the front row of expectation, jubilant, sober countdown. And you can also understand that when the clock told 12 that midnight and October 23 came, that young 16-year-old, broken heart, wept with the rest of the Millerites. You know what? This last May, wasn't, this, wasn't it this last May? It's just coming to my mind. Wasn't there, a, there was a, a, a radio teacher out in, uh, in California. Give me his name again. Harold Camping. Harold Camping. And what was the date? It was on a Sabbath. It was on a Sabbath. I do know that because I preached on it. What was... 21st of May, May 21, thank you. May 21. And you know what? The press was having a heyday. I mean, the Facebook had a big Facebook party the day after the end of the world. Carolina, they were calling for a big Saturday night bash. I mean, it was all across the country. Because the followers of this Herald Camping, you know that, don't you? They were standing on street corners in New York City accosting these well-to-do New Yorkers. And saying, do you understand that the world's coming to an end May 21? Unabashed, unashamed by the thousands. We believe that Jesus is coming. You know, the press, they really began the taunting. I mean, it was just, even the, the mainstream press was doing its best to be restrained, but you could just sense the edge. Whew. You could also sense the relief. Oh, I'm glad you were wrong. And a lot of that is relief. But you know what? I didn't join it. I didn't join, did you? I didn't join in this uh, mockery. Are you kidding? Yeah, I, exactly. I took it personally. I said, hey, wait a minute. Those are my roots. 
My people, the Millerites, went through the same thing. I'm born out of a movement that began with a tragic and terrible disappointment. I didn't make fun of them because, you know what? When was the last time I said to anybody, I'm telling you the truth, sir, Jesus is coming soon. No, I keep those cards close to my vest. Maybe if it comes out in a conversation, I'll let you see those cards. But when have I taken the initiative to come? Hey, do you know that Jesus is coming soon? What are you doing about it? No, I didn't laugh at them. I thought they were a morality tale for the Seventh-day Adventist church about a courage once upon a time that we no longer have. Now look, I don't believe in date setting at all. And I hope they never, I hope camping does, uh, you know, he was going to try to do something in October. I hope he stays away from it forever. But the point is, we ought not to laugh. Our movement came out of that kind of disappointment. So this is now, that was October 22. On a December morning, 1844, 17, she's 17 now, 17-year-old Ellen is at a friend's home in a prayer circle with four other women. We're talking about small groups, having prayer groups. So she's having a prayer, she's in a prayer group. She's 17. I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up if you're 17, but that's not hard to imagine who a 17-year-old is, what a 17-year-old looks like. She's 17. She's in the prayer group. This happened. And I'll put the words on the screen for you. While we were praying, December 1844, while we were praying, the power of God came upon me as I had never felt it before. I seemed to be surrounded with light and to be rising higher and higher from the earth. I turned to look for the Advent people in the world, but I could not find them. Where's this Millerite? Where are these Millerite movement people? I couldn't find them. When a voice said to me, hey girl, look again, look a little higher. At this, I raised my eyes and I saw a straight and narrow path cast up high above the world. So she's seeing all this. Here goes this path. It's just wandering up into the heavens. On this path, there they were. The Advent people were traveling to the city, the New Jerusalem, which was at the farther end of the path. They had a bright light set up behind them at the beginning of the path, which an angel told me was the midnight cry. And that's the, that's the Millerite movement. Jesus is coming. Jesus, behold, the bridegroom comes. Midnight cry. The angel says, that bright light that's giving you some illumination on this pathway, the light is behind you now. That's the midnight cry movement. This light shone all along the path. In other words, you'll never outgrow a passion for Jesus soon coming. The light shone all along the path and gave light for their feet so that they might not stumble. Now, here, here is a clincher. If they kept their eyes fixed on whom? Her first vision. 2,000 more of these are going to come over her lifetime. Number one vision. What's the bottom line? If they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus who was just before them, leading them to the city, what are those last three words? They were safe. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to have you carefully note, please, in this apology... An apology in the Greek, apologia, means defense, not saying I'm sorry. Apology means defense. In this defense of the gift through Ellen White, I want you to know right here at the outset that numero uno vision, her number one vision, her first vision, in Spanish it would be primera, first one, primero, her first vision, her first vision, bottom line, if they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus, who was 
just before them, leading them to the city, they were safe. It occurs to me that for a community that was raised up by this 17-year-old little girl, you and I are part of a community of faith raised up by this little girl. I know she wasn't the only one, but I happen to also know she was instrumental in this community ever finding existence in the light of day. In a community raised up by this little girl, I think it's significant that the first vision had as its bottom line. In fact, if we can put this in the present tense, you'll need to fill this in your study guide now. If we can put this in the present tense, if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, fill that in in your study guide, we are safe. For the rest of these slides, if it's in yellow, that means you fill it in in your study guide. If we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we are safe. Boy, that sounds like, that sounds like the gospel message to me, doesn't it to you? Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Ah, how did Jesus put it? In the Sermon on the Mount, what did he say? A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. So far, the fruitage up to the age of 17. Fairly good fruit, would you say? Fairly good fruit, I'd say. She loves the Father. She meditates and prays. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, we'll be safe. I'd say the fruit is good. Can a bad tree bear good fruit? Then what kind of a tree was she? That's where we're going. All right. Jesus said, A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So here's the question, guys. What kind of a woman was Ellen White? Hmm? What kind of a woman was she? Who at 19, oh my... At 19, fell in love and married a 25-year-old itinerant preacher named James White. And at 20, became the mother of the first of four boys. Wife, mother, listen to this, homemaker, visionary, church leader, public speaker, intrepid traveler, institutional builder, best-selling author. What was she like, really, as a person? A friend of mine who now sleeps in Jesus, named Dr. Horace Shaw, used to teach for years at Andrews University. For his doctoral dissertation at uh, Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan, for his dissertation, he was studying the... Re- it, was, it was called a, a rhetorical analysis of Ellen White's speaking style. So he was, stu- he was studying how she spoke because he got his, his Ph.D. in communication. But to do this... And get this, we're not going to look at her, her speaking style. But to do this... He had to interview as many people as he could find who were alive when she was alive. Now, by the way, let me just say about the, about the, uh, her, her speaking style. She was widely acclaimed as a public speaker, sometimes addressing up to 20,000 people in her audience with no PA. Now, I'm surviving because I have this little thing clipped to my tie. 20,000, no PA. They could hear her voice. And I'm gonna play for you tomorrow. And actual, the actual footage of a testimony of someone who heard her speak and heard her pray. I'm going to play for you tomorrow, right on the big screen here. All right. So anyway, Horace Shaw, for his doctoral research, he gathered as many people as he, he wrote back in the, he did this research back in the 50s. He was able to listen to this. He was able to interview 366 people who had heard her speak. All right. So out of those interviews, a physical description of her emerges. 
So let me just give you, let me paint a little word picture for you, and you try to imagine what this looks like. She was a short woman, five foot, two inches tall. I've given her an inch. I call her five foot three, but she's actually five foot two. Do you know how tall five foot two is? Come on. Five foot two. Say what? Oh, five foot two, I'm sorry. <laughs> Anybody here five foot two? You're five? Do you mind standing up? Are you five foot two? You go, girl. You don't have to take those shoes off. Okay, come on here. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, look, look. Five foot. Five foot two. Okay. And this is your daughter? Oh, and you got heels. That's okay. That's okay. Okay. But, but look, are, are, we, are we talking tall here? No. This was Ellen White. Just like this. So you, you put your hand over her, almost. Thank you, ladies, very much. The point is, she was a short little lady. Short. So what do we know about her? Thank you, ladies, uh, for your willingness to do that. Uh, what do we know about her? Number one, we know she's five foot two inches tall. Let me read it some more. Interestingly, hold on, hey, listen to this. Interestingly, it was her face that was remembered the longest. Listen up. I'm quoting now from uh, different recollections. Features round and full, said one person. Sweetest smile broke out occasionally, said another person. Face seemed to light up, said another. Her eyes. Beautiful brown eyes with a faraway look. Her eyes were large and became larger if she was in earnest or excited and grew smaller when she smiled. Her hair. You already know this one. Her hair. Plain hairstyle. Hair dark and always parted, combed back and simply to a braided knot in the back of her neck. Her dress, black velvet or silk, two-piece garment, white cuffs and collar as accent, gold watch chain, silver watch in her pocket, and a silver brooch. I went around and said, I've got to find a picture of Ellen White, an actual photograph. So I've got one for you. Here we go. There she is. Does that surprise you? You didn't, you didn't expect her to be stepping off the cover of Glamour magazine, did you? No. She's a Victorian woman. She's living in the Victorian age. And there she was. You can see where that stone left its imprint. It's not imprint there, but the collapse of, her, of her, the bridge in her nose. There she is. Victorian woman, very much so. And yet, I need to tell you, just because uh, she's a Victorian woman doesn't mean she was a prude. So straight-laced, she didn't know what to do. Let me, let me tell you a story here. On one occasion, listen to this. She attended the wedding of a young preacher named Daniel Bordeaux, who for three years, and I live at the Theological Seminary, where we, where we have these uh, lonesome young men roving across the campus at Andrews University. So we, we're, we're used to this. But this, this, this young man, Daniel Bordeaux, for three years had been searching for a wife. You get the picture. All right? Searching for a wife. He finally found one, and Ellen White's husband, James, was going to officiate at the wedding. The wedding was, was held in a home, and because the service was late in the day, the newlyweds accepted the invitation of the host to spend their first night in that home where they just got married. Okay? Now, Herbert Douglas is describing what happens next. When Ellen White, who was 33 at the time, we're not talking very old, all right, 33 at the time, 
When she went upstairs to retire, she saw a very nervous young man pacing back and forth in front of a closed bedroom door. She suspected a problem. Gently, she said to the young bridegroom, as the bride later quoted her husband's recital of the incident, Daniel, so here's what she said, Daniel, inside that room is a frightened young woman in bed, petrified with fear. Now you go into her right now, and you love her, and you comfort her, and Daniel, you treat her tenderly, and you treat her lovingly. It will do her good. And then she added, Daniel, it will do you good too. <laughs> she wasn't a prude. She was a normal human being like you and me. You know, sometimes we get this image, oh boy, whoo, a little glowing halo. No, come on, guys, please. So what was Ellen White, what was she like, what was Ellen like as a wife and mother? Listen to this. In a letter that she wrote to James two days after he had left home on a ministry itinerary. So he's leaving home, the boys are all left with her. Okay, here we go. Okay, this is the story. I just uh, read it and we got it. So here's a letter now to James. We are all well as usual. It takes a little time to get settled down from the excitement of your going. You may be assured we miss you. Especially do we feel the loss of your society when we gather about the fireside evenings. We feel your absence when we sit around the social board. That would be the dining room table. All right? We miss you. Now, a couple weeks later, she writes another letter. Here we go. I had written you quite a lengthy letter last night, but the ink was spilled upon it, making an unsightly blotch, and I will not send it. We received your few words last night on a postal card. Battle Creek, April 11. No letters from you for two days. James White. She goes on. This lengthy letter was written by yourself. Thank you, for we know you are living. I will write every morning. Will you do the same? What was she like as a mother? She had four boys. She loved them to death. By the way, to death was her lot for two of those boys. That's why it broke her heart when her little John Herbert died at three months of age. Thirty-three years old, she loses her little boy, at three months of age. If you have ever lost a child, and you're young enough to where you don't even have a child, but if you've ever lost a child, and I have attended and tended to families in that time of grief, there is no grief like it. The death of a child. She writes about this death, this impending death, She's 33 years old when she writes this. My babe was worse. I listened to his labored breathing. I felt his pulseless wrist. I knew that he must die. That was an hour of anguish for me. I fainted at the funeral. It's not often that a person faints at a funeral. I fainted at the funeral. My heart ached as though it would break. Yet I could not shed a tear. There's no deeper human pain than that. She had it once. She had it twice. This was three years later. 
Her firstborn son, Henry, died at the age of uh, 16. He worked in the Review and Herald publishing house. I was just talking to one of our young adults who's working at Pacific Press. This is young Henry, who's working at the Review and Herald publishing house. He was, he was known, by the way, around the publishing house in Battle Creek as the sweet singer. He just had a beautiful voice. But he caught a cold that turned into pneumonia, and the, the doctors, the stuff they gave in those days, uh, toxic drug concoctions, exacerbated his condition. His last words to his mother. Oh, I don't have this on the screen. His last words, let me read it to you. His last words to his mother. Mother, I shall meet you in heaven in the morning of the resurrection, for I know you will be there. And then he beckoned to his brothers and his parents and friends, and he gave them all a parting kiss, after which he pointed upward and whispered, Heaven is sweet. These were his last words. You know what, guys? It hardly matters what your life calling is. I don't care what you do professionally. When you go through an experience like that, that, is a, that, that, that strips you down to your, your bare humanity. She was a human being. Lost two of her four boys to untimely death. Second son was 16. First boy was three months. Three years later, her oldest boy dies at 16. You can't go through, you can't go through an experience like that and not be drawn to the very heart of the human race. People who have lost children have an expanded capacity for compassion, I found. Just had a pastor retire on our team. And we just had his uh, retirement... Uh, December 17th, his farewell December 17th. He's retired three times, and uh, this is his third and last time. And we were lucky he was with us for his last installment of his ministry. He was our pastoral care pastor. His name is Pastor Arnie Swanson. Great, great pastor. Just a compassionate heart. Uh, their boy was flying a plane to student missionary assignment when the plane crashed. And their boy was killed at 21, 20, 21, 22 years of age. You never recover from it. You never do. You can see the crystalline, the silver pain in the eyes of a parent who's lost a child. You can, you can just see it. And I've buried the children and I know the parents. But I tell you, it does something to your heart. And Arnie is, is just one of the... the, the just, just a huge-hearted man who's, who, who loves the human race. And out of his own tragedy, God has uh, built a ministry for him. Ellen White, you cannot help but be affected. What did Jesus say? Something about fruit. If it's a good true, if, if it's a good, if it's a good tree, what's the fruit? Can bad can bad fruit grow on a good tree according to Jesus? Can bad fruit grow on a good tree? No. If it's a bad tree, can good fruit grow on it? No. So if it's a bad if it's a bad tree, it's not going to have any good fruit at all. Can't be. Just cannot be. What was, she, what was she like as a mother? What was she like as a wife? Ah, we need to do something a little more cheerful. Uh, so I was visiting on the phone with a former associate who taught me how to fish, uh, Paul Sanchez, and uh, he was pastoring somewhere else. I called him up and we got into conversation and he's, he's just this huge fisherman. So he just loves to fish. And he said, hey, Dwight, I, I found it. I'll get it from the White Estate for you. I found a letter where Ellen White supports fishing. I said, come on. He said, no kidding, I found it. He sent me the letter. I want to share it with you. Put it on the screen for you. Got this from the White Estate. 
So, here, here's the background of this. First, I need to say, uh, Ellen White's writing to her family. She's left the family in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. She's speaking at a string of camp meetings, but she's left James and the children there. And she's writing a letter to them. And so it's going to be read to the kids. So she calls him Father in the letter that's going to be read to the children. Father, our writing can be done in the winter. In other words, he wanted to write some books. This is summertime. Our writing can be done in the winter. Lay it aside now. Throw off every burden. Be a carefree boy again. Come on, just be a boy. Enjoy life. Will and Mary, if they stay in the mountains a few weeks longer, should neither study nor write. I don't want anybody to study during this time. You guys need a, a break. They should be made happy for this season that they may be able to look back to this time as a season of unalloyed pleasure. Just undiminished pleasure. Now she keeps going. The few days you now have together improve. Roam about the mountain. Camp out. Fish. See, that, was the line that, that was the word that caught Paul's attention. Fish. Hunt. Go to places that you have not seen. Rest as you go and enjoy everything. Then come back to your work fresh and vigorous. Father needs to be a boy again. Roam all around. Climb the mountain steeps. Ride horseback. Find something new each day to see and enjoy. This will be the, to Father's health. Do not spend any anxious thought on me. You will see how well I'll appear after the camp meetings are over. Now, what's that letter tell us? She's just a, just a, a, a usual human being. And what's she asking her family to do? Have a good time while I'm gone. Don't study. Don't take yourself so seriously. Don't write. Just enjoy yourselves. Go fishing, hunting. Do whatever you want. Relax. Be a boy again. What does that letter inform us about uh, Ellen White? She's a very average human being. Into life and her family. I want to tell you here that I have had the privilege of reading Ellen White for years. And as I reflect on what I've read over the years, it's occurred to me that her life has been driven, ignited by three passions. I want to share these three passions, passions with you, and then we come to the end of first, the first half of uh, this, this presentation. So take your, get your, uh, your study guide ready to go, because I want to give you some numbers. And uh, somebody's got a, 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 a phone here. Oh, you're recording it? Okay. All right. Three passions. And I tell you what, you can't get you can't get a few paid you can't get a few sentences into Ellen White before you run into these passions. Passion number one, she had a passion for the Savior. Would you fill that in, please? She had a passion for the Savior. She's the most Christocentric writer I've read. You know what Christocentric means, don't you? Christ in the center. Christocentric. She's the most Christ centered writer. I know, and I read widely, trust me. I read everything I can get my hands on. She is passionate about Jesus. In fact, jot these numbers down. On my CD-ROM of her writings, she writes of Jesus. I said, okay, how many times does Ellen use the word, the name Jesus? 37,038. 37,038 times she writes the name Jesus. Obviously, it was a name familiar to her. She speaks of Christ 69,277 times in her 100,000 manuscript pages of writing. 69,277. And of the Savior, because I said, oh, let's just put the Savior in, 11,583 times. She had a passion for Jesus. Steps to Christ, the spiritual classic that became her most translated book, by the way. It is her number one translated book. Steps to Christ. From that book, 
Look at this. Isn't this great? Capturing her passion for Jesus. You are not to look to yourself. You are not to let the mind dwell upon self. But look to whom? Look to Christ. Let the mind dwell upon His love, upon the beauty, the perfection of His character. Christ in His self-denial. Christ in His humiliation. Christ in His purity and holiness. Christ in His matchless love. This is the subject for your soul's contemplation. Just look to Jesus, guys. It is by loving Him, copying Him, depending wholly upon Him, that you are to be transformed into His likeness. Oh, mercy. What was that first line from her vision we noted? And you filled it in. What was the first line? If we keep our eyes fixed on, then we are safe. She lived it. She didn't just preach it. Oh, I'm going I'm to preach this because it sounds good and Christocentric and everybody will think I'm Christ-centered. She didn't just preach it. A hundred thousand pages of manuscript by the thousands she was focused by her word choice. Focused on Jesus. Wow. You can't get more Christocentric than that sentence we just read. Focus your soul on the Lord Jesus. Passion number two. So she has a passion for the Savior. And number two, hands down, she has a passion for the Word of God. I mean, this little lady, five foot two inches tall, had a passion for a Holy Scripture. Unbelievable. Watch this. This is an Ellen White writing. Where is this from? You have it there in your study guide. Where is it? Is this from the... Uh... Okay, six volume of the Testimonies, page 393. Ringing exaltation. Oh, by the way, pick up any of her books. Pick up any of her books. At the back of the book, there will be what's called a Scripture Index. Have you seen those at the back of her books? Scripture Index? And I'll tell you where. Any direct Bible quotation is noted there. So if she quotes Genesis 3.15, it'll say Genesis 3.15, give you the page number. Now, if she alludes to Genesis 3.15, you won't see it anywhere. Those are only direct referenced quotes. You go to the back of Desire of Ages. You go to the back of Great Controversy. It's just page after page. The woman was saturated with a passion for the love, for the love of God's Word. Uh, the Bible is God's voice speaking to us just as surely as though we could hear it with our ears. Did you hear Janet Page reference that this morning? You heard that, didn't you? She said the Bible is God's voice. Not just His Word, it's His voice. If we realized that this was His voice, with what awe would we open God's Word and with, with what earnestness would we search its precepts? The reading and contemplation of the Scripture would be regarded as an audience with the Infinite One. So if you were in our first uh, module this morning, and we talked about this time, seven days a week, 30 minutes, alone with God and the Word. You, you and I could envision opening the Bible, even if it's one of the four Gospels, especially if it's one of the four Gospels, opening the Word to one of those stories, we are having a private what? What's, what's, what's the word here? We're having a private audience. Do you know what an audience is? What's an audience? If you go to England, anybody here from England? If you go to England and you want to see the Queen to have tea with her, she has to agree to an audience. What is an audience? It's when they bring you in. Would you follow me, please? And you've been schooled and they've told you exactly how to, what you do when you come into the presence of the queen and curtsy and all this kind of thing. You've been schooled. An audience is where you're ushered into the very presence of the queen. They shut the door. 
and you are alone with the Queen of England. Wow. Private audience. Ellen White says when you open the Word of God, you have a private audience with the Infinite One. Isn't that something? A private audience with God Himself. Oh, she had a passion for the Savior. She had a passion for the Holy Scriptures. And I'm telling you what, she had a passion for the salvation of the lost. I have never read any writer, and there are multiple writers today who are telling us we need to get into soul winning, we need to get into evangelism, on and on and on. I've never read anybody who is more passionate about saving the lost than Ellen White. You can only go a few pages into her, into her writings and pretty soon she's talking about it. She's talking about her longing to reach the lost. She's talking about her passion to connect with lost people and to lead them to the Savior. It's, it's just unbelievable. In fact, take a look at this. Recently in the night season, I was awakened from sleep and given a view of the sufferings of Christ for men and women. So she's, she's awakened. She's, she's kind of shown this picture of Jesus' suffering. This is an amazing quotation. I've written this quotation down, by the way, on my page of my Bible for 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The love of Christ compels us. So she says, I'm given this view. Now, keep reading. His sacrifice, the mockery and derision he received at the hands of wicked men, his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, his betrayal and crucifixion, all were vividly portrayed before me. So she's seeing the, 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 the passion, the closing scenes. As I have thought of that cup in Gethsemane, trembling in the hands of Christ, as I have realized that He might have refused to drink and left the world to perish in its sin, I have pledged that every energy of my life should be devoted to the work of winning souls to Him. Hey guys, you will not find anybody more passionate about of saving the lost than that, will you? Find a passage anywhere on earth that's more than that. The passion is more than that. That's passion. Passion. That's it right there. She says, as I have reviewed the picture of Christ's suffering, I have pledged that every energy of my life should be devoted to the work of winning souls for Him. Wow. You got that in your study guide? Hang on to that. Called by God at the age of 17. Gifted with the spiritual gift of prophecy. Ellen White lived her 70 prolific years of ministry ignited by these three passions. Three passions. Passion for the Savior. Passion for the Word of God. Passion for the salvation of the lost. It is no wonder. Now you're, now you're going to develop a little writer's cramp because you're going to keep moving and I'm flipping through these fast. So here we go. It is no wonder that her life and ministry were so fruitful. She is considered today the third most translated author in history. That's human history. The third most translated author in history. Keep going. She is considered today the most translated American author, male or female. The most translated. Any American alive or dead. She's the most translated. Keep writing. Her literary productions totaled approximately 100,000 pages, the equivalent of 25 million words. Had to quit school at the age of nine because of that tragic, tragic accident. Next time you're feeling sorry for yourself because it's taking you all this time to get through where you are in school. Look what God can do to a life fully dedicated to Him. 100,000 pages, 
You're going to write 100,000 pages by the time you, if Jesus doesn't come, expire? No, you won't write 100,000 pages. 25 million words, you may speak them, but you, may, you won't write them. Isn't that amazing? Third most translated author in history. The most translated American author, male or female. Keep going. A decade ago, 128 titles were in print bearing her name, including books that are compilations. 128 titles. As the fruit of her ministry and leadership, God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist Church to become... Now, jot these down. Fire and buy them. God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist Church to become the largest Protestant educational system in the world today. There is no larger Protestant system. Tomorrow, I'm going to share with you Christian Science Monitor and its response to Adventist education today. Unbelievable. The largest Protestant educational system in the world today. The largest Protestant health system in the world today. Bar none. The largest Protestant publishing enterprise in the world today. Bar none. And the most... the most expansive Protestant missions outreach in the world today with the Seventh-day Adventist Church in more countries than any other denomination, period. A little five-foot, two-inch woman dropped out of school because of a tragic accident at the age of nine and all of that that you just jotted down, the fruit, the fruit of her leadership and spiritual ministry. How did Jesus put it, ladies and gentlemen? A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Therefore, by their fruits, what? You will know them. But I want to conclude today with a personal testimony. Conclude first half here. The personal testimony. I mentioned a moment ago that I grew up in an Adventist home. Fifth generation Adventist. Went to Adventist schools, Southern. Went to uh, Andrews for the theological seminary there. And while I was enrolled at Andrews University, 22 years old, getting my Master of Divinity, I was taking a class from a, a, a great professor who no longer teaches there. A European professor, just brilliant mind. And he made us... He... he uh, made a statement once in class. I, I scribbled it down, thinking, you know what? This could end up on the final exam, and I want to make sure I get it. Forgot all about the sentence. Forgot all about it until we came to Christmas break. Now, my, my wife, Karen's a nurse, and she was working in hospital floor nursing at the time. She's a, she's a family practice uh, nurse now. But uh, she was working because we were just starting out, 11 to 7. She got the job 11 to 7 in uh, St. Joseph. So Karen's working 11 to 7. Autumn quarter's over. We're getting ready for Christmas break. We're going to go down to her parents' place. And uh, so I'm praying, like every good seminary student does, I'm praying before going to bed. Fifth generation Adventist, you just know that you do that. You pray before going to bed. As I'm praying, there's, there's there's just something... Inside of me that just, just just felt missing. It just I didn't know what it was. I said, "Man, what is this? I just feel like something's not complete in my life." And that's weird to feel that uh, over a holiday break. And just like that, just like that, the sentence that I'd written down from that professor, bing, comes back into my mind. 
And here was a sentence. He was lecturing from Psalm 19, and he, lecturing on David, and he said, Gentlemen, because that was back when there were just guys in the seminary. He said, Gentlemen, we ought to ask God to reveal to us our true sinful nature. So I wrote it down because it may end up on a test. I've got to know that. We ought to ask God to reveal to us our true sinful nature. Because David says, David says there, cleanse me from my hidden faults. Right at the end. Cleanse me from my hidden faults. And in Psalm 139, David says, reveal to me my, if there's any wicked way in me. So he, he combined that and he says, guys, we need to be asking God to show us our true sinful self. So all of a sudden, I'm, in, I, I'm kneeling by my bed and I'm going to crawl in, but I just sense this lack. And that sentence comes, so I prayed it. I said, oh man, I've never prayed that prayer before in my life. That's a great idea. I'll pray that prayer. Obviously, God doesn't have much to show me, so we'll get it over with quick. So that's exactly what I was thinking. So I prayed that prayer. Boom. I felt better for praying it. Nothing came to my mind. Whoa. Went to bed and just fell right asleep. We go down to Karen's folks in Carolina. They were living in Charlotte where her dad was pastoring. We're coming back from Charlotte. We're crossing, I can tell you the very place, we're crossing the Kentucky-Indiana border when just a dark, heavy, oppressive cloud just came right over me. Just over me. I couldn't shake it. I'm thinking, this is crazy. Get back to Andrews. I wake up the next morning and it's, it's, it's New Year's Eve. The next morning is the day before New Year's. We're coming up to it. And I said, man, God, the problem is I haven't promised you it's going to be a great year next year. And so I got Micah 6 verse 8 out and I wrote that on a piece of paper. I said, God, he has showed thee, O man, what is good, what does the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with you. I said, God, this is my, this is my motto for the new year. You're going to be very happy with me now. So I wrote that out, but it didn't help. I started waking up in the middle of the night in a sweat. I started having nightmares, and in those nightmares, little sins that I had laughed off, dismissed from college, laughed away, little sins started returning to my night vision, dressed in all their dark, guilty array, and I'm looking at these, and I'm suddenly realizing, you know what? This boy ain't so good after all. Only later did I realize... You know what was happening? He was answering my prayer. I'd asked him. I said, hey, come on. This won't take long. Show me my true self. He, he was wise. He said, I'll wait. I'll wait till you're vulnerable. And then, boom, they started coming. I am now overwhelmed with guilt. I don't know what to do with this guilt. I mean, I'm a young preacher to be. I've already spent a year interning in Roseburg as a youth pastor. I'm supposed to know I don't know what to do with this guilt. I go back to the professor because I'm taking a second class from him. After all, this was his idea. He'd surely have a solution. So I go back to him and I wait till the class is over and I say, Professor, I need to talk with you. And so we were going up the stairwell, the old stairwell in the, in the theological seminary. And he's from Europe, as I mentioned. He's not a real, you know, talking type. And so I, I, I just pour out my heart to him. I said, you know, Professor, I did what you said to do last Last quarter, I've asked God to show me my sinfulness and I am really overwhelmed with guilt. What should I do? What I wanted was for him to say, hey, boy, come on into my office. Let's just talk about this. But he wasn't the talky type. And so you know what he said to me? He says, go read Steps to Christ. Steps to Christ. I had to read that book to get baptized. I had to read, I had to underline the topic sentence in every paragraph in Steps to Christ so I could get baptized in Japan. 
I have steps to Christ. But the professor said, go read steps to Christ. Go read steps to Christ. So I went back to my apartment there. I know the room. I know the number. I jog by it every Sunday. And I pulled that old Army-Navy edition of Steps to Christ out. And guys, I, that little book, I began to read it from scratch. No topic sentence now. Just a heart desperate to know what do you do with this guilt. And I stand before you today to testify that the title to that book became a self-fulfilling prophecy in my life. And I found the steps back to Jesus right there in that book. I am telling you what... I don't need to study her fruit from books. I have found from the reading of just one little book the truth about the Savior. And I am absolutely convinced, guys, I'm absolutely convinced that her prophetic spiritual ministry was a gift of the Holy Spirit. And the fruit we see in her life is genuine, good fruit. She is a good tree. And Jesus said, can a bad tree bear good fruit? No. A good tree bears good fruit. And by their fruits, you'll know them. Check it out for yourself. Check it out for yourself. Self. See if it's not true. Start with the fruit. By the way, when you have when you have studies with people and you have conversations, I learned this from a friend of mine. Start with the fruit. Once you establish the fruit, the rest will fit. As I'll show you right after the break. I want to pray with you right now. Let's pray. Dear God, we must pray. Here's this little woman that the Holy Spirit used to raise up a sprawling community of faith that has all those accolades that we noted on the screen a moment ago. But right now, Father, it's not about all of that. We are grateful for this church we love and belong to. But right now, the Spirit is teaching us that the that the focus of the gift is if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we are safe. My own personal testimony is the steps to Christ are embedded in the gift. And so I pray for every man, woman, young adult, every person here. Dear God, may we taste and see that the Lord is good And so is His fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.com dot o r g